Welcome to Into the Mothlight, a podcast dedicated to artists' moving image, experimental film and festivals, and installation art. It's November in Scotland, the wind is blowing through the windows, and the rain is hammering down. So, ideal weather to be sitting in the dark and looking at new work from some of the artists who have been recommended to us recently. If there's anyone whose work we really should be seeing, share that with us on Twitter at the Mothlight Pod or email us at mothlightpodcast at gmail.com. This time we're in Newcastle in the northeast of England, specifically the Newbridge Project, which is home to hands on film. This is a female run and facilitated film lab that aims to generate access to artisan film production alongside an open and participatory exhibition and discussion programme. At the project, they create a space of engagement via hand processing and small scale production facilities which offer a personal and reflective approach to celluloid. Their ethos is rooted in skill sharing and peer led education. In addition to regular workshops, they have hand processing facilities and a fully equipped darkroom and stacks of equipment that can be hired or booked. Hands On Film is run by Leah Miller, a moving image artist with a great passion for photochemical film. I met her for a tour of the project, a bit of help to develop some Super 8 film, and to talk to her about her own practice. Into the moth light. So this is the lab. As you come in, it's kind of the the little tea and coffee area and um, <laughs> so that's very very important uh-huh. and then coming through we've got the this is kind of the dry space so uh, we've got an editing suite for uh, 16 millimeter we have two steenbecks at the minute one of which we use as a contact printer let's have a proper look at these steinbecks when we're right beside them then so um i mean this is technology that I've never had the opportunity to, 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 to get to know and, and I guess as part of your practice this will be a bit of kit that you've used a bit in the past. This was a gift actually from a musician in London who had bought it many years ago along with um, some other bits of the editing uh, kit that's in the lab. When he heard I was going to set up a lab with access that other people could have access to he gave me this and it's really good because they're really expensive um, if you're to buy them new and it's really it just came at a time when I really wanted to start editing my work by hand um, and to be able to think about making physical cuts rather than scanning um, and editing digitally Um, and I wanted to understand both sides of the process so it's pretty good. Um, they do take a bit of looking after. Um, I did have to renovate this one myself, but through doing that, I learned that I could also use it in a dark space as a contact printer. So that kind of pushed my practice a wee bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just really good. Um, it's also really useful just to have, um, because it's flat bed and the plates run mechanically, you can 
kind of wind up film and spool it down and um, break up large amounts of film if you're buying in bulk, which we tend to do in the lab because it means it's more affordable for people to buy buy film. So 16 millimeter film, I might buy it in like thousand meter rolls and then break it down for people mm, so that it's mm-hmm. a wee bit cheaper because mm-hmm. um, that is one of the main problems with film for a lot of people is it's pricey yeah that's true <laughs> so I'm, I'm used to um i'm used to well not similar but machines that do a similar thing for um for reel-to-reel audio yeah. um so what would the process be for editing on on this piece of kit then yeah basically you've got uh so you've got plates where the film runs from end to end um, and it runs past a mirror with a prism um, and there's a another mirror here and the lamp is here and it deflects the image so that it appears on this screen um, so what you would do is you would have one end of your film rolled around here mm-hmm. and the other here um, and then your image appears here you just like read it move it from one end to the other and then you decide where you're going to make your cuts um, and having it the problem with film is that it moves it's like a life form and it wants to wriggle about and spool into a big heap of spaghetti at your feet and <laughs> um, so having it on something like this controls it mm-hmm. um, and if you know right I want to if you can have a look I can see that there's this is like a this is like a little animation so there's three frames it changes every three frames so I might say okay I want to make a cut there take that bit out and join those two bits together and so you use splicer um, which is like when you're using Premiere or Final Cut Pro when you've got your little blade tool actually that is based on a physical system which is this Mm -hmm. so you can maybe hear it that's a cut and we'll cut the next section of film out. And then we've got two ends, which we join together. Um, originally, this would have been done using a cement splice. Cement splicing is challenging. Uh, you have to learn how to do it, and it takes quite a long time. It's a pretty good way of doing it, but um, a lot of films have to be restored after a while because the cement dries out and breaks down. I prefer to just use tape splices, which is what I'm doing now. So it's like, it looks like sellotape, but it's much more expensive than sellotape. And it's got a high tensile strength um, and it's resistant to heat uh. so that you, it can be projected. That's it joined together. And as I learned as a projectionist, you've got to put your tape on both sides of the join um, so that it doesn't catch going through machinery and subsequent processes. Yeah, that's basically the rudiments of film editing. How many hours do you think you've sat at this particular machine? Um, too many. <laughs> um, it's great though because if you're sitting in the dark and just watching your images coming up on this kind of hooded screen, um, what you've shot kind of comes to life again. You start to think about, you know, oh, maybe, maybe I could play it at this speed. Maybe I could reprint this. Maybe I could. Maybe I'll just do it like this. Maybe I'll have it in negative. You start to think about what you might want to do with the images or what order they're going to be in. Um, And I really enjoy spending that time with the work that I've shot again. I really like the fact that I film it, but then I get to spend more time with the images 
thinking about them and um, maybe like rediscovering them. Into the moth light. Into the Moth Light Podcast. As we move round the lab here, um, you've got a very nice selection of projectors. So, what do you have here? Uh, so, there's a couple of. Um, this is kind of the projector hospital. Uh, there's a couple of uh, Super 8 and Standard 8 projectors, which are a bit sick at the minute and those belong to various people. <laughs> um, there's no Bell and Howell 16mm Filmosound, really nice machine. I've actually got two of these, um, both of which were donated to me. Um, one came with quite a large amount of sand in it. I'm not sure how that <laughs> how, <laughs> how that got there, but I've, I've been spending a while trying to sift that out. Um, and then we've got two Ikey uh, projectors, again 16mm. One of them is uh, an NT1 and the other one is a slot loading projector, which I use quite a lot in my own practice because I occasionally do performance work with loops um, and I find that really great because I don't need to spend a lot of time lacing it. I can just shove a loop, a 16mm film loop in there and it will be quite a speedy process Mm because there's something... um, I really enjoy projecting and I've done it for a while. I'm definitely not the most skilled at it. Um, it's an art form. Whenever you're doing a performance and you're suddenly wrestling with machines in front of an audience of people, it takes on a, a terror that I'd never <laughs> experienced before. So it's really good if you can um, help yourself out with uh, getting a machine which um, kind of guides you along. Yeah. Do you get to a point where where you're working as a projectionist and it is perhaps in a, a performance setting that you, you, you do become sort of at one with the, the machine that you're working with? Oh, um, I think you definitely need to make friends with each bit of technology that you're using. I've had most of these in bits in front of me, kind of taking them apart so I understand when things go wrong, how to fix them. This guy in particular... Um, he's quite temperamental and tends to do what he wants. So I have had occasions where the optical sound bulb has gone off and then come on again, and uh, <laughs> I think there's ghosts in that particular <laughs> machine. Um, maybe I need to spend another decade doing it, but um, <laughs> I don't feel at one with um, many things yet. I do feel like there are a couple of cameras that... Um, feels very natural for me to use certainly um, I think maybe the darkroom equipment is the equipment that I feel like most connected to mm-hmm. yeah I couldn't even guess what this uh, one is this, this is, is a this is a, a pick sync it's a film synchronizer so what I just explained to you in terms of editing was a very very basic uh, description of film editing and any kind of professional photochemical film editor would have been grossly offended by the lack of detail. Um, <laughs> this is uh, a piece of equipment that would be used for following established procedure, uh, either uh, which might be called A and B rule editing. So, um, what you might have is, or sometimes called checkerboard editing, where um, 
you have the film on two different rolls and one area will have a picture and the other area will have a blank blank bit and uh, you kind of sync them up um, while you're printing the film so uh, it's quite sort of there's hacked ways that you can make a film as an artist filmmaker which I quite often do because not just because I'm lazy but also because it's expensive to go through every step as, a, as you would in a commercial lab and mm-hmm. um, but this is something that would be used in a commercial lab in the um, ed- editing and printing process however I quite often use it as a contact printer for small sections of film because again it has a lamp here which falls on film so I can put negative film and print film um, packed on one channel and print images that way so that's one of the, that's the main reason that I have it. Mm. Do you find you're um, donated a lot of you know like eight millimeter super eight a lot of people have them in their lofts or the back of the cupboards and think they're obsolete and just want rid of them do you find you get donated cameras um i do yeah quite a few um i also get large amounts of film um so that little role that you've just been um prodding about that is a section cut out of a cinema film trailer 35 millimeter um so a cinema in in the northeast gave me a lot of um they're all kind of stacked here uh cinema trailers um that are now obsolete or they don't use 35 millimeter projection anymore um so i've got all of those and had them for quite a while and been carting them around from as the lab has moved and Uh really questioned whether they were useful to have people do give me a lot of film but i kept them and i'm glad i did because we were doing a quite a long running project with the Anne Frank Trust. Uh, it was run out, run through the YMCA. They have a drop-in centre in the centre of town. And um, we did about three months of workshops with young people um, where they were accessing analogue technologies um, as a way of self-expression at the same time as um, writing music. And we did a couple of sessions with cutting up um, cinema trailers and making slides and using collage and that was really great so I was really glad that that I had been h- hanging on to those <laughs> things uh, but yeah it, people people ask me quite a lot about um, cine film what they should do with it because they maybe have some reels in the attic but they don't have a projector anymore or they've got an old camera or something I have been asked by a few people if they want if I want to to accept a donation of a lot of like old cine film and I think for me in my practice it feels like something I might not want to use and it also feels like quite a precious thing to be given so I've started thinking about having projection evenings where people can come with that film and share it and kind of like you know look at it and remember you know maybe what it was Mm -hmm. in a group because you become a custodian of images like that whenever you're given Mm -hmm. them and um, I think I think it's good if people can retain ownership of them because the technology isn't necessarily obsolete. They just need a way of sort of bringing it to life. Into the moth light. So, of course, one of the things that you do do is hire out equipment. What do we have to look at today? What do we um, have here? This is a Krasnogorsk. It's a another 16mm camera and it's a Russian one. Um, I really like it because they're very cheap and I think everyone should know about them. They might not have the finesse of a Bolex or 
um, a beaulieu, which is a French one, um, but they're really cheap. And if you sort of accustom yourself to using them, you can get great images and you can pick up one of these online for a couple of hundred pounds, mm-hmm. maybe 150. They sell them reconditioned in the Ukraine and a few other places. It's exactly the same. You have a feed spool and a take-up spool. Um, they run past the gate with a shutter plate. And it's also a clockwork mechanism, so it's mm. spring-loaded. You wind it up. It's running at quite a high speed there, but you can alter the speed um, on it. You can't do rewinds and... Um, one of the things that people really like about Bolexes is that you can rewind film that you've shot and mm-hmm. double expose mm-hmm. it. You can do animation on this as well. One of the things I really love about it actually um, is that it's got a shoulder stall. So this is a... Basically when you're shooting, that holds it really steady. Yeah. So you don't even need a tripod for it and you can shoot handheld and get a really nice stable image. It's also got... I'm not getting commission. Um, I don't sell them myself, but um, I just like it because it's, you know, one of the things about film is that it is prohibitively expensive for a lot of people to use it. Um, And a lot of people, you know, there aren't that many places in the UK where you can hire cameras, which is why mine are quite often being used. It's really difficult if you're trying to make friends with a medium and become accustomed to it and use it in your practice if you only ever get to use a camera twice a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, it is really great if you have a spare couple of hundred quid, or um, you've got a birthday coming up, if you can like buy one for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one also has a lens on it that's really good that comes as standard, which is it's a rangefinder, so it's got a variable um, focus and uh, great zoom on it. Um, so yeah, it's a good bit of kit. Into the moth light. Into the moth light. Yep, so this is the dark room. It's a collectively managed space that we share with quite a lot of photographers who um, like to develop and print images as part of their practice. So we've got a lot of the equipment again is donated and we've got a really we've got a great big darkroom sink and places we can store all our chemistry the lab usually makes chemistry from scratch so we buy the raw chemicals and then make up the developing recipes according to formulas um, i use quite a lot of ecological recipes so i make developers from plants caffeinol and things like that so okay. you've brought along a film for us today yeah, just so this is um so I've been shooting on on my my little very basic um super eight camera, mm-hmm. and um on this roll half of it is um was shot by whoever bought the camera um and then stuck it in a cupboard and the other half I've shot as part of a something that will go towards another project. So be interesting just to kind of talk through the the, the process of how you would develop this. Okay, so um. So- Nice little well-maintained camera. If we just open up the back, uh, we'll be able to see what type of film you've been shooting with. Um, Okay, so it's Kodachrome. And I can see the cartridge, it's Kodachrome 40. Sadly not made anymore. 
and the chemistry for developing it is not made either. So it's a colour film which is quite famed for the colour saturation and contrast and we would develop this as black and white, mm -hmm. um, either negative or reversal. Uh, so if you're developing as negative you get a negative image which you would then scan or print um, for projection. You could also develop it as a positive so you use two developing stages. I think quite often what would happen for amateur filmmakers like my dad is you would get a camera and a projector and you'd shoot your film, put it in the envelope, send it off and they'd send it back and then you could project it for the family so um, that's the way that worked. What we'll do is we'll develop this uh, using D76, which is a Kodak recipe, and we'll develop it as a negative, um, and then you can scan it, and, and we'll use a Lomo developing tank. So this is another Russian piece of kit. So it's if you've ever done 35mm uh, developing, for stills photography. It's quite similar, it's a spiral. This one here can be used for 16 millimeter, so that would that space is big enough for a piece of 16 millimeter film. Mm -hmm. Or we can turn it round and you use this spiral um, and it goes into this tank which makes it light tight. The Lomo tanks are really great because um, they also mean that once you've loaded up your film you can pretty much develop it anywhere like a, a bathroom or I've had studio spaces where there's been no water or anything and I've just been able to load my film up somewhere else and then develop in my studio. The process will probably will do a clip test to just check for time and develop a small clip um, and see if you're getting the image you want. I'm gonna say it might take about eight minutes uh, in the developer. We wash it with water and then we use a fixer. Kodachrome has a something called a remjet backing on it, which is kind of like a black layer, um, which then has to be rubbed off with a mm. cloth. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the that's the final stage. Um, okay. And then hopefully you'll have your image, but we'll see. We'll see. It's a bit of a gamble with, um, with Kodachrome. Well, yeah, let, we'll let, let's not call it a, a gamble. Let's call it an experiment, <laughs> okay. shall we? Um, and the last time I, I, I developed um, Kodachrome was caffeinol processed. And oh, the right. trickiest bit for me, it was okay. Yeah. It was an experiment. But yeah. the trickiest bit for me was getting it out of the cartridge oh, yeah. um, in, a, in a black bag and into the tub for developing. So how, yeah. how do we um, approach this one here? Well, it's, it is tricky. I do know people who are able to just, you've got these little tools that are used for um, popping up in a 35mm canister. Um, and I kind of tend to, I tend to do something quite dangerous when I'm on my own because I'm quite impatient. But I tend to just blacken the room and then crack it on the edge with a hammer. Um, and then that loosens it and then I prise it off with this tool um, I like and it that just comes off. That works for it's alright but I've had a few bloody thumbs so <laughs> 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 um, but yeah that's that, that's how I do it but there are I know people who are able to do it so perfectly that they can reuse the cartridge mm, so, okay um, I'm not one of them yet
Thanks very much for the tour of the lab and uh, be really exciting to see uh, what comes back from that role of Super 8. So I, I guess we'll update you on the results of that in a, a future podcast once we get that back and scanned. Um, tell me about your, your fascination with photochemical experimentation. Where did that start for you? I've been taking pictures for a long time, um, since I was a kid. Uh I think I really liked that initially because I liked how putting a camera in front of me could allow me to pick out detail in what was in front of me that maybe I wouldn't normally see. Mm-hmm. Taking that forward into the, the image that's produced, whether it's a still image or a moving image, I think there's something about photochemical film that I feel like I'm I'm present when I'm shooting it, but that presence carries through to uh, the film itself and the object um, that's produced as part of development. So I feel like I'm able to be present at lots of different stages of the image's creation. And I find that quite powerful in terms of what you get at the end. And I think it's a process where the idea of an image being something sort of dormant um, is kind of important to me because I feel like it comes if a film is in a tin it doesn't really exist um, but when it's being projected that's the moment where it's a film for me So, and I feel like that moment where people are experiencing a film or an image with photochemical film there's something very tactile and uh, there's something to do with the materiality of the the image, whether it's the grain or the way in which it's been exposed or manipulated, which allows a point of entrance for someone who is receiving it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's that for me. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that it's it's tactile, which I, I guess ties into um, hands-on film. And you're yeah. the lab that we're in here yeah. today. So, what, what what was the kind of inspiration and background for 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 building this that you've shown us around today? I thought of the idea of setting up the lab because my practice has always been enabled by film labs and working with collectives and communities of people who've shared knowledge. And without that, I don't think I would ever have started to. Have, I would have started to make to make my own work um, and I wanted to have something like that that would enable me to continue working but would also activate a community and allow allow other people access to it. I think one of the things about film is that because there's quite a lot of technology involved in terms of, you know, if you want to make a film you've got to kind of explode it, the idea, and think about each step and get involved with the process. And each one of those can be daunting. And maybe I'm someone who has experienced quite a lot of self-doubt or understands what it's like to be have sort of trepidation over technology. 
so I kind of like the idea that those things are broken down and made a little bit less threatening in quite a domestic setting um, so the lab is it might not be technically cosy but it is quite a domestic space um, and the idea is that uh, it's kind of a point of entry for people um, where they'll be facilitated by, by other artists and sort of the process will be a bit less daunting. Mm-hmm. Okay, because on, on the website you talk about um, having a place to, to meet and discuss and to view artist film. Yeah. So t- tell me about the times when you, I mean obviously it's just you and I here today, but tell me about the times when you do get together and, and I, I know you've got quite a nice cinema space next door so you can, you know, you can view work, you're, you're yeah. very self-contained. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really great um, when we do have screenings, I try and have them certainly when we have seasons, when we do workshops um, we try and have them every couple of months and that means that people can share work uh, we can screen work that's been filmed, uh, that's been made in workshops that have been held in the lab. But also, um, I think it's really important to share work um, from filmmakers around the UK. So there's a network of people who um, I'll ring them up and say, "Oh, I'm doing a screening about this. I'd really like to show this film of yours," and they'll pop it in the post. And then all of our screenings are um, people give donations, and that helps to we can then share that amongst the filmmakers. It's a really nice idea to have um, people coming together and sharing work. And if people are able to come to the screening, then they can talk about the work mm-hmm. and um, how they made it. Um, and often people have uh, are really interested in that and. Uh, particular aspects of the process and um, that's a really good kind of opportunity to um, I guess to learn but also to kind of be interested in other people's work as well but we also um, do screenings at the Star and Shadow Cinema we've done a couple of programmes curated um, for different um, one one was around ecology and filmmaking most recently um, so we were able to show a range of work from experimental filmmakers um, and established artist filmmakers um, ranging from Agnes Varda to William Rabin and some French experimental filmmakers so that was really nice. Mm-hmm. I was looking at your film um, Light the Way, a nine minute journey through colours, forms, textures developed on the fabric of the film. Um, so we can talk about the ideas, of course, but indulge me and uh, talk to me about the creative process there. In terms of creating the images that you can see in that film and how you assemble that work uh, in the order that you presented it in. Oh, yeah, I guess I was really interested in pure colour and the idea of how light would travel through through an image that had been shot in a camera basically the the idea for this kind of came from me being asked to make film clutter for a music video um i guess film clutter is like you know flares and things that you'll see at the end of a roll of film um and it's all of the things that are mistakes but are can be you know incredibly beautiful um and not many people will have this experience, but when 
film was projected on film there may have been occasions where the film would get trapped in the gate and um, a frame would go on fire so film burns yeah so I've always been sort of interested in that but you know it's just accepted it as something that happens you know as part of the process that you're not attempting to control and those are things that you know they kind of appear and you're they're like little glitches and things like that um but i got asked to create a role of this for a music video because um if you're a nerd and you're watching music videos you'll notice that there are several bands um where they've added a a layer of film effects on top of a digital file mm -hmm. and if you're even more of a nerd you will come to recognize these film of, of effects as being similar because they are using one file which has been shared around and which you can yeah. download um, as part of a premiere or final cut pro package this music video being made for island records they wanted their own film clutter that was not recognizable and you know no one else had access to so um they paid me to make mistakes um mm -hmm. which i found was much is much harder to get those effects intention intentionally but i did things like i introduced light leaks into a camera and shone torches on bits of film and i didn't really want any imagery i just wanted pure color mm -hmm. and um then you know scratching on film and introducing texture um rifling film out of the bin and um, things like that uh, so it basically just got put into music video as a layer and then I thought I'd really like to make a film um, in its own right mm -hmm. like that that just focused on um, the idea of colour and light journeying through a piece of film and so that was that was basically the concept mm -hmm. of, of making it. But it, it, it's a it, it's a beautiful nine minutes um, when you watch it in the right um, environment and, and under the right circumstances. Your interest in colour, I, I was kind of fascinated on some of this. And you talk about Rudolf Steiner, and, and again, I, I admit I had to look up some of the, his colour theories, yeah. but what, what's the kind of fascination with him and his writing on colour? The colour theory is interesting anyway um, to me. But it can always, if you look at sort of Newtonian ideas of colour, which are very much the ideas of how colour is blended and how, you know, how we can kind of create colours from the spectrum for painting and um, it's been the basis of a lot of modern art theories on, on colour. Um, they're quite, uh, you know, they're kind of established and um, maybe it's harder to find ways to work with that in film um, the thing I like about Rudolf Steiner is that he talks about I guess more of a kind of psychological effects of colour um, spiritual effects of colour um, and I feel like when I was experimenting with colour pure colour on film it made me think a lot about the idea of some kind of entity or spirit that was coming through um, in an image and uh, I think that really married quite well that's maybe why I gravitated towards Steiner's theories well, listen, it's been it's been really interesting to talk to you about your work and uh, have a tour of your lab here. And also, thank you very much for uh, processing my little film. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, not at all. Really lovely to meet you. Into the Mothlight is a Charles S. Bravo production. You can follow us on Twitter at The Mothlight Pod 
email your questions and comments to mothlightpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at Mothlight Podcast. Like us, rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast isn't sponsored by anyone. Perhaps you can do something about that. Until next time, goodbye.